Every day, millions of things get returned to big box retailers like Home Depot, Target, and Lowe's. They don't know what to do with them, they can't resell them, so they need someone to sell them to. Mac Discount, founded by my guest today, Sean Allen, buys those goods, sight unseen, and flips them on their live auction website every seven days. In this interview, we break it all down, we understand his buyer, we understand his suppliers, and how he's building a healthy company culture set to grow even more. Here is Sean Allen. So I want to talk about uh, your your business. It's it's interesting. It's distinct. Um, when we, I was doing my prep for it, I got really excited just to learn from you. But to just give people a picture of where the business currently stands, can you just give us some numbers to outline the growth trajectory that you guys are on? Yeah. So Mac Discount started in January of 2018, and we currently have uh, 14 locations, a little over a million square feet of warehouse space. We're selling somewhere between 15 and 20,000 items a day, and it takes about 650 of us to process those items each day. And some of these items that are being sold are not small. These are refrigerators. Like, Just talk about what's actually being sold on a regular basis. Yeah, so we take a lot of customer returns and overstocks from big box retailers, a lot from Amazon, Walmart, Target, Home Depot, those kind of places. So currently, we do have a lot of very large items coming from some of these home home improvement stores. Um, So we have full... uh, full appliance loads right now. So we buy everything by the truckload and then sell it individually. So we there was an opportunity for us to buy appliances and that's why you see a lot of those on the site. But we also have everything down to wireless headphones, a, a bathing suit, anything you'd find on Amazon, you can find on Mac Discount. And folks can take uh, receipt of the goods that they buy by just coming to one of these 14 distribution centers that you guys have set up. Yeah. And I, I think what's really interesting about the business is we're kind of a blend between technology and brick and mortar retail. So all of the purchasing happens online through auctions. Every item goes up for a dollar and is sold to the highest bidder, but we don't ship any items. So everything that you win in the auction, you come to one of our auction facilities to pick up. I mean, that's that's a staggering amount of growth for just four years in business. And this isn't taken on like you didn't go to SoftBank and raise three hundred million dollars or something to get this thing off the ground, right? That that is correct. We are totally self funded. So how is it's self evident that if you're selling that volume and it's being caught at uh, being bought originally by you at a, a relative discount, there's a big opportunity there. But just in terms of a genesis, what made this opportunity clear to your eyes, to your perspective, when most other people weren't seeing it? Yeah, so it, it definitely was a, a blend of two individuals. Kellen Campbell and myself came together, and my background is in online auctions. So I started in late in late 1990s, working with a company in Pittsburgh called Free Markets, where we were doing online auctions and selling product online. Um, That went through a number of iterations, and I ended up at another local company called Genco, where they were doing reverse logistics. And that's where I met Kellen. Um, FedEx came and acquired Genco, and their model really didn't fit surplus goods and secondary products, and they're kind of, you know, big brand. They don't want the the associations with non-first run product. So they were kind of phasing that business out. And Kellen and I saw that there was all of this product in the industry that was basically being sold by wholesalers. So, and then these wholesalers would dish, dish it out to small mom and pop stores, but there were no auctioneers or anybody going directly to the consumer. 
And so we just saw the opportunity of taking these high volumes of products and kind of acting like a wholesaler in the market. But instead of just flipping the loads, we would actually break them down and move them into to consumers' hands individually. And, and so why is auction such a, a kind of big opportunity? You say you've spent so much of your background there. Yeah. You know, self-evident, we all, we all know, hey, 3.5, 3.5. Like we, we, we have a conception of what an auction is, both you know, probably in a real life and a digital format. But why is that this kind of unlock of value? Yeah, so I think... An auction is an addicting process. So, you know, we believe you start an auction at a dollar, somebody comes in and they place a bid. And as soon as they're the winning bidder and they have indication, they take ownership of it. So you're like, wow, this is cool. You go to an auction to get a great deal. I have this item at a dollar. And then the next thing you know, somebody else takes it from you and you feel this sense of loss and it's a natural reaction to want to get that back. So I'm not going to let this person outbid me and they bid again and you get you kind of create this attachment to something that you don't own, but yeah. you have the opportunity to maintain control over it. And we find that I think that process is just a fun way to purchase. And yeah. so everyone likes to share that experience. They go through it. It's something to talk about. And most of our product sells for 80% off of retail, 70 to 80% off of retail. So you get a great deal. You had fun doing it and it creates like, oh, I'm going to go back. And so that kind of, that sense of ownership and validation, I think, is a compelling way to purchase items. And that's why we, we pursued the auction. And it seems like if people are getting it 70, 80, 90% off of you know market price, there is a degree to which it is going to have a natural, I don't know if virality is the right word, but word of mouth spreading, which is another important lever for growth of a business where you're not putting all of your excess capital into these marketing efforts necessarily. It's, hey, you won't believe, see this fridge, guess how much I paid for it. And they're, they're basically bragging about your company via these other brand name products that they're already purchasing. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. So, you know, kind of our strategy is when we go in and open these new markets, we do have a big front end advertising budget to kind of get some awareness, but then it drops off quickly after three months. And it, it's really a very low spend to just keep engagement with current bidders. And so, you know, th this is also bringing to mind um, other kind of like break open market by market uh, type of businesses like Uber, where they'd have like a team and they're like, we're going to go win pittsburgh we're gonna go win new york and that was the the primary objective and that's a, a much less capital efficient business than it sounds like yours is but there is still a similar notion to once we figure out how to get the first location open that becomes this playbook that we're iterating on so that you guys are at 14 now you're going to get to 28 probably more efficiently more quickly than you got 1 to 14 because you actually are starting to have a playbook that you can run repeatedly yeah. And I think, you know, the, this last year was really important for us. So in 2022, we actually broke off and opened a store down in South Carolina. So we went to Greenville, South Carolina, which has you know nothing to do with Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, And it was really to test the model to see if some of the things we had learned and some of the advertising techniques that we had used here would work when we didn't have an established business that had been around for a couple of years. And the, the real enlightening thing for us is, is that it worked. So we opened up this new location in South Carolina. Um, we targeted an area that had the same demographics in terms of income and, and kind of unemployment levels and those types of things. So we were able to go in, hire good employees, offer this you know value proposition through an auction. And we're now finding that 
the the building was cash flow positive in 60 days, covered all the initial investment in 90 days, and now is just as profitable as any of our locations in Pittsburgh that have been running for a couple of years. So the question that then always comes up when things start to work, the opportunity for either distractions or or going in the wrong direction actually escalates because you now have capital to deploy. When it was just we have this one location, we got to make it work. It was all our focus. You know, we're testing and learning, but this is where the opportunity is. When you see something like that, it's hey, we've completely replicated this in a orthogonal market. Where does your mind or calculation go as to what the trajectory of the future of the business looks like? Is it now like, hey, we should go take as much capital as we can and go as fast as possible? Is it still piecemeal and methodical? Like, like how does your perspective come into come into clarity? Yeah, that that's an interesting question. I think you know, Kellen and I both are very kind of analytical, and we come from a, a pretty you know, conservative background, especially for being in kind of a riskier entrepreneurial business. Yeah. And from the day we set it up, we knew that managing and understanding our data and our metrics was really key to the growth. So we spent a lot of time, we developed our, our own software platform. There was nothing out there that kind of managed this unique product. But what that's done is we have really clear ratios between the number of items we can put relative to the number of bidders to our square footage. And we kind of keep it within you know, some guidelines around how much should we post each week? How fast should we grow? And I think that, you know, we, there's risk in growing too fast and there's risk in growing too slow. Yeah. So we really try to stay within this bandwidth of, if we know that we put a certain amount of product out relative to the number of bidders that we got in the previous week, we're able to keep our returns to be very consistent. So kind of our, our margins, as we've looked at it, have stayed within one or 2% the entire time through this growth. And so we kind of say, if we can effectively control the supply in the market, increase our bidders and keep those ratios in alignment, we can continually grow without seeing big peaks or valleys in terms of cash flow and those types of things, which can sustain the growth. So I think even when we're really successful and, and you know, launch a successful facility, we know that if we keep the course and kind of follow our metrics and analytics that we know work for us, we're not going to get caught in some of the pitfalls of, you know, growing too fast, expanding, getting pinched on a cash standpoint. And it's been successful. What can you tell us, since this is really a marketplace business and, you know, on one side, there's the demand. Do you have enough customers to actually, you know, uh, create liquidity for the things that are being sold? Uh, but on the flip side, you need to supply a marketplace. What can you tell us about the truckloads of these returned goods, the, the folks that you're buying them from and why this is like, wh where was this going previously and, and why, uh, what is the relationship with like those folks that are, you know, happy to pass their stuff on to Mac discount? Yeah. So if you think in the world of a big box retailer, their, their primary focus is to get product into their facilities and sell it, right? They don't think much about the return product. It gets in the way. So the, you know, the, the returns market specifically is around how can we get this product efficiently out of the retail environment so it doesn't distract from their primary focus of selling and not slow down any of the processes. So in an, in an Amazon distribution facility, for example, they, they fulfill product, but they also take returns. So how can those returns get out quickly? So someone like us who can come and buy volumes of truckloads and get them out on a consistent basis adds value to that primary retailer. 
Um, and then we just need to make sure that our process is efficient enough that as that product comes to us, we can absorb it and get it through the market without building it out. So knowing those dynamics of the market, we developed our process so that from a truck, when a truck arrives, we're able to have it out the door to our customers in seven days. Wow. So that's our inventory turns in, you know, as the product comes into these facilities. And that also and helps with the, your, your, you know, ability to run profitably because you don't have does. inventory sitting on yeah. the shelves. We go really, we move it really quickly. And that's why retailers value players like us versus somebody who may put it in more of a traditional retail environment. It sits on the shelf for a couple of weeks at a price and then is maybe discounted to move at a liquidation. Um, but we're able to not have to put in the time to price. So, you know, what is the correct price for an item that's been returned? And let's say, you know, whatever, it's a, a, what, a refrigerator and it's got a scratch on the front door. Yeah. You know, okay, you go to a traditional scratch and dent store, there's all these varieties of prices and you can kind of wait, oh, it'll go down next week, it'll go down next week. So the consumer sometimes has the incentive to wait for that price to get to a point where they want it. Where with us, we say rather than trying to guess where that market price is for an imperfect item, we start it from a dollar, the auction then goes to market value based on the feedback we get from the bidders, and that item moves in seven days. So does that mean that you also are gaining legibility into what that actual market clearing price is for certain defects on products, like a scratch on the front versus a scratch yeah, on the I, back? We don't get into that level of detail. Okay. So I, I couldn't say that you know a particular you know damaged item contains a certain amount, but we do know that let's say by size or by category, what is the average recovery relative to retail? And so I think that that information helps us in our buying pattern. So we know that, you know, if we buy a certain type of product, our recovery is going to be at a certain rate. Therefore, if we can purchase it at this price, it's, it's a good deal for us. And, you know, one of the, one of the lessons we've learned is that there is no bad product in the market. There's just product that we paid too much for. Yeah. Because so, everything will sell at auction, right? If you think it starts at a dollar, so we're selling a hundred percent of the items that come through our trucks, you know. And if something doesn't sell for a dollar, there's you know maybe somewhere around five percent of the items we list that doesn't receive a one dollar bid for whatever reason. We throw those into a pallet, and then the next day there's a big box of a hundred items that starts at a dollar, and then it will sell that way. Wow. So. Are there any considerations for the the big brands that are actually the products themselves? So you have the big box retailer, and the big box retailer has all these you know brands that they're basically distributors of. They're catch uh, getting these returns, and then you're now selling through. And I don't know if we can say the names of like you know major refrigerator and like other types of. I, I've used that analogy a couple times now. Is there any sort of consideration or constraint that they impose on you? Or is once this has been returned and sold at wholesale, their effective control or relationship with the good ceases? Is there, is there any sort of barrier there? Yeah. So uh, I think that kind of goes back to the return processing for the, the retailer. Yeah. So those retailers negotiate various contracts with the manufacturers of the products. And some of those vendor agreements require that the product is destroyed or that the product is sent back. Um, Nike is one. So, you know, Nike tells the retailers, do not put our product into the secondary stream. So when we get a load from a retailer, it won't have any Nike product in it. Right. Because that's required to be separated out prior to the truck coming to us. 
once it comes to us, we have no restrictions on selling that product. Got it. That makes sense. Because I was, I was going to say, um, what I just learned this story recently, and this is very different kind of market, but it's somewhat relevant to the the Nike story is um, there's a story of uh, Enzo Ferrari, and this very wealthy uh, American business person comes to his his shop in Italy. It's like I want one of your cars, one of these you know super expensive cars, and he goes. <laughs> I, you know, I'll, I'll see, you know, maybe in a couple months I can reach out to you and, and get one for you. We're really like oversold right now. And the American businessman leaves and one of his workers comes up and is like, we've got like 17 cars right over there, like in the facility. He goes, no, no, no. If, if we had it right there, it wouldn't be as special to him. It wouldn't, it wouldn't maintain yeah, that prestige. That and that's why Ferrari's Ferrari. But it's interesting how, you know, that there's a space everywhere in the market for all sorts of different, you know, scales and positions for, for different brands. And, you know, that's the type of thing that most people who are actually shopping in a retail environment don't necessarily appreciate how that occurs. Right. Yeah. And we do notice that if we get, there are certain brands that come through that do really well. So the solo stoves, right. That, you know, kind of the new craze, when we get those in, we see that they sell for 70 or 80% of retail. Wow. Because it's a product that you don't see as discounted in traditional first run retail. Yeah. Um, where there's other products that are always discounted, you know, you start to see see much lower recoveries. And it just kind of has to go back to how does that original manufacturer price their product in the market? And so that product carries through into a secondary market. The same brand awareness that they've created carries through on the second sale as well. Got it. So one of the other questions that I just always love talk, uh, talking with an entrepreneur about is what is or what are your constraints? So, you know, sometimes it's at the beginning, we just need to figure out how to get leads or sales, or we maybe do need funding because we have to build out this tech product before it's actually ready to go to market. You're operating profitably, you're growing. Um, is it, is it, you know, quality people? Like what are the constraints that you face as a business at this stage of the game? Yeah. Time in the day? Yeah, I think like most people nowadays, our constraint, one of our big constraints is labor. So we really struggle and we're, you know, we're fighting with a lot of people in that, let's say 15 to $20 an hour range to get quality employees in. Um, so one of the things that we've done is we've really, uh, maybe since we're like into secondary products and we're, you know, we're selling things, we, we look into secondary labor markets as well. And we have a number of individuals who, who have struggled in the past you know, potentially coming from, you know, environments of addiction and or incarceration, you know, coming through a halfway house, those types of things. And we've actively reached out to those communities to provide opportunities to come and work at Mac Discount. Um, and there's just been a number of really rewarding stories that have come from it. So, you know, we've, we kind of had to stretch our or let's say our horizon of who we wanted to look for to make it work. And we have one individual in particular who, when he first came to us, he was working, um, you know, living in a halfway house, just coming out of some addiction issues and could not get to work. So we run a straight nine to five shift Monday through Friday. He'd show up 10, 11 o'clock. And he's like, oh, I just can't get out of bed. I can't do this. And so he went away for maybe three or four months. We just kind of mutually parted ways like, hey, you're a great dude, but if you can't get here on time, you can't work. He came back and said, hey, I think I'm ready. I want to come back. So we gave him a second chance. He then became one of our supervisors in the facility. He moved up to Butler, which was the original area he came from. He was a general manager for that store. He's now the regional manager for all of our Pittsburgh stores. Wow. 
And this individual who couldn't get out of bed at nine in the morning has his own place, has a car. He actually regained custody of his kid. Um, his life has completely turned around. And what we found is that going through this process, maybe, you know, again, stretching our comfort levels of who we were working with and how we were growing the business has created loyalty and understanding of how to adapt to the current labor markets and bring in folks and still be able to grow in a positive manner that we didn't think was possible. So it's kind of just been this really strong, mutually beneficial relationship that we have with a number of employees like that, that, um, that that's helping us overcome the challenge, but it's still there. You know, we went from in March of 2020, kind of the, the whole shutdown, we had 14 employees. Um, and we just went over 650. Holy moly. In, you know, just over two years. That's pretty darn good. Yeah. So we, we, it's a challenge, but we, we were able to work through it. And so from a, a training standpoint, cause you've, you've got the folks that have to actually operate these spaces, make sure that you're able to do that seven day turnover of the goods that come in. And then you're also simultaneously building software. Are those developers in house? Cause that's like its own other complete like recruiting and retention challenge. Yeah. No, no. We have our developers are all in house. So we kind of. You know, we sat down and wrote the spec for the inventory management system that is also our auction and invoicing system is all on the same platform. And the difference, I guess, when you think of a traditional retail environment, they have, you know, a couple hundred thousand SKUs and deep quantities, right? And mm -hmm. then they reorder when quantities get low. And that's kind of your standard inventory system. The unique thing about the returns industry is that every product is unique. So, you know, you may have you know, whatever, uh, you know, two vacuum cleaners. Well, one of them, somebody assembled before they returned it and it's in just a plastic bag and the other one is still brand new in the box. This one's been used, right? So those two, you can't sell them the same. Yeah. So we had to create this system that allowed for every item to be a unique SKU. And that was one of the challenges from the software side that we had to to roll out because there weren't existing platforms to do that. So that that's kind of how we... <laughs> we looked at that software solution a little differently. What about the media associated with that? Because, you know, I'm used to like the glossy, you know, direct, brand new direct to consumer companies and they have this, you know, gorgeous shoot and all this amazing item photography. You can't quite probably scale that to the same degree. Like how do you think about actually just, you know, creating the media that gets the goods sold? Yeah. So as we go through our scanning process, we, we do go out to and pull a stock image from a retail site, usually from where the product came from. So we have the retail site, then we have a camera that takes an actual picture of the item. Um, but more importantly, we offer inspection to all the all of our buyers. So the, kind of by that seven day cycle we talked about, if we scan an item on Monday, Tuesday is the inspection day, Wednesday is the auction day, and then they have three days to remove it, which would be Thursday, Friday, Monday. And that's the cycle for a product. So what we find is that Lots of our real savvy buyers will come in to pick up the items that they won and they'll look at the items that are available for the next two days and they inspect them. So they come in, they look at it, they know, okay, I see the stock image. I see the box has a little ding in the corner. I'm going to go look and see what it is. And then they know exactly what they're bidding on and it gives them some knowledge to to take it to the right price. So when you're saying they're savvy buyers, does that mean there's also basically like power? Jeez, did you catch that now? That was a little. Okay. Um, does that mean that there's also power buyers who are basically like buying and flipping the items again? We do. We have a number of buyers who do that. So 
everything from uh, somebody who, who maybe has kids who are in school, wants something during the day, yeah. they buy a few items, sell it on eBay, sell it on Facebook Marketplace, try to turn it into something. So we have kind of your little part-time flippers, right? But then there's also folks who buy thousands of dollars from us on a weekly basis that either go to a flea market on a weekend to sell the goods, or some of them have even opened up storefronts here in town where they're buying the product from our auction and then putting it in a traditional retail environment, discount retail environment here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, because when I saw it, I, I kind of got mad that, you know, we just a year ago redid our kitchen and I had spent way too much on all brand new appliances. And what else have you learned about the folks that are buying and using a platform like this? Yeah, so one of the things we did fairly early on was created a membership program. So we have a preferred buyers club for these folks who buy on a frequent basis. And, you know, we're selling... For example, the um, facility in Washington, Pennsylvania, sells about 1,500 items out of one of the auctions a day. That gets pretty crowded. You know, so if our average buyer buys somewhere between one and two items a day and we're running an auction every day, we get 1,000 customers that come into our location to pick items up each day. That can get crowded. Um, So we're open from noon to 6. And that's Monday through Friday, noon to 6. What we did was... There's a membership fee. It's $29.99 a month. And for that fee, you get extended removal hours. So you can come in between 10 and 12. Mm. So those folks who buy a lot, who are going to resell, it's easy for them to come in in these off hours, collect all their items, not have to stand in line and do some of those things. Um, The other thing that was really critical as we grew the number of locations is we allow transfers between the locations. So we have one in Robinson, one in McKees Rocks, and you don't want to make the drive between the two you can just have your items transferred over. And if you're a member, that's free. So unlimited transfers between locations. You only have to go to one spot to pick them up. Um, and so lots of the people who take advantage of that membership are these repeat buyers, are, you know, our, our members. Um, they're spending probably seven to eight times the amount on a weekly basis as our individual buyers are. Got it. So I want to you know, spend the last bit of our interview here really focused on you, the entrepreneur, and obviously your business partner as well. Um, if I could summarize the number one lesson that I've gleaned from the hundreds of interviews that I've done with different really successful entrepreneurs is that the folks that get a result, like what you've already had here in the first four years of this business, and I'm sure there's even more exciting ones to come, the folks that get a result like that are often misunderstood as this like overnight sensation. Like, wow, Sean, in just four years, like this transformation occurred. Aren't you lucky? Like what a amazing roll of the dice that occurred. And in reality, you were, you're working at the most or or the biggest Pittsburgh startup of the late nineties, early two thousands. You've been at other companies that were acquired. You have this uh, effect in which your skills, your experiences, your network have compounded preceding the actual founding of this company and then it manifests in this company that you've started so to the folks that are out there in some way shape or form earlier on their journey of compounding their skills compounding their relationships compounding their experience what would you tell them about what it feels like to be maybe not fully formed i'm sure you still have improvements that you want to make personally but to be able to express the compounding now in the present yeah, that's interesting. I we I think about this occasionally. And back right after I graduated from undergraduate school, I went into the Peace Corps. And so I got this experience of you strip away everything that is meaningless and you go back to kind of prime survival, right? Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? What's really important? 
And I think some of the lessons that I learned there, I've carried through my entire career through, through Mac Discount, where really focus your activities on things that you can control and that you have a good idea of what the outcome is going to be without getting distracted by the things that go around that really don't impact what you're doing on a daily basis. It, within Mac Discount, the real example of that is Kellen and I, we have these conversations and we'll say, well, this would be interesting, or what do we know about this, or this buyer you know, patterns. Then, and then we'll sit there and we'll say, if we knew the answer to that question, would we do anything differently? And if that answer is no, the conversation's over. Because there's no, there's no value in us pursuing information that won't help us make a better decision moving forward. So we really focus all of our analysis on ignore things that don't matter. Focus on the stuff that if we know this answer, we can do a better job every day. And that's where we spend our energy is to, to get better without paying attention to the, the distractions that are out there. And there's a lot of them. Besides those, you call it football or soccer. And I feel like I'm like self-conscious. I go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> As a soccer fan, besides those experiences, are there things that you explicitly avoid consuming or that you're more judicious judicious about because it either is aligned with what Mac is pursuing or it's really in the realm of the personal and the unrelated? Yeah, I think, you know, if you spoke to my wife, she gets very annoyed when I see anything and I immediately am trying to fix that problem, right? So there's definitely that element of, this isn't operating as efficiently as it could be, and I think I can do it better. And you know, we're out anywhere, and she'll say, "Don't even say it. I know what you're going to do. You, you can do this better." I'm like, "I can. Like, look, this is how it should happen." Yeah. And she's just like, "Shut up. That's work. Forget it. Go, you know, move on." So I do struggle quite a bit to go to go between the two, just in terms of. I just feel this fundamental belief that if something is being done and it's a waste of effort, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, And so, yeah, I, I, that's my personal struggle on a daily basis is I need to just step back and say, when I'm at work, I can fix problems. I can make things efficient. I can, you know, make them profitable, whatever it might be. But from a personal standpoint, that same thing that makes me incredibly successful professionally hinders personal relationships because I'm very critical of most people's activities. Yeah. And so that in my mind, that's where I really have to just take a step back, take a deep breath and say, my way isn't always the best way, so personally. This is almost like a personal therapy <laughs> session because I find that very, very relatable. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really, really impressed by the business that you've, you've built and are continuing to build. Um, I want to aim towards wrapping up, Sean, but before I ask our standard last questions, uh, is there anything else you're hoping to share today that I just didn't give you a chance to? You know, I think... One thing that we do at Mac Discount that's really important, and it kind of goes back to my Peace Corps days and everything, is we feel like being connected to the community is important. So once a week, we'll pick a local charity and we run a charity auction. So we'll take 50 items that we donate to the auction. We sell them under our same format, but the proceeds of that auction are given to the local charities in each of the areas that we're in. And that has built, you know, along with giving some employees these second chances, has really helped us connect with the community and build this great relationship that helps the word of mouth and grows the business. And at the end of the day, we're like, we had a great day. We're growing our bidders. Everything is good. And oh, by the way, we just, you know, gave this local charity their annual budget. Yeah. And then that's something that, you know, take all the financials, the growth, all the metrics we've talked about. At the end of the day, you feel good about what you're doing. 
and it makes you want to get up the next day and do it again. Yeah, I, I love that pathway too, also to imbuing your business with a why that isn't necessarily just the business itself. So, you know, being able to get access to these at, you know, these 70, 80, 90% discounts is meaningful to people. That is, you know, sometimes the difference between whether or not they can go own that thing. Um, but there's a, there's a meme, you know, Hannah and I are very big fans of uh, Bo Burnham, the comedian, and he kind of does this, you know, parody satire of, it's like, what do you stand for, Cheez-Its? Like, what, what are, what do you, what is the why? Like, what, what is your political stance on this obscure issue? It's like, that's probably not the healthy, like, final end stage expression of our businesses. We don't need them to have, like, full political platforms. But if you can kind of tie in this additional community and, and social impact to what you're doing in whatever form it's meaningful to you, that's going to give everyone a little bit extra oomph when they're rowing the boat in the same direction. Yeah. And we love it. You know, we're going to continue to do it and we're not going to, it's not like we go out and advertise it every day, but I know that, you know, for us internally, we're really proud of what we do and we want to keep going. That makes sense. Uh, for folks that want to learn more, maybe bid on something, uh, check out everything you and Mac discount are up to, uh, what digital coordinates can we point people towards? Yeah, so the, the website is mac.bid, M-A-C dot B-I-D. Um, and you can also go into the where you download your apps and search Mac discount, and we should come up. Beautiful. We're going to link all that in the show notes at com slash podcast for every single episode of the show or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. Uh, but Sean, before I let you go, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Yeah, so... I really think it's important to give people a second chance. So I, I would ask everyone out there to, when you have the opportunity and there's somebody who, you know, you're maybe on the fence about, give them a second chance. I think at their heart, everybody deserves it and it would be a better place if we all did that. Amen. What a beautiful note to wrap up on. Thank you. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was awesome. We just went deep with Sean Allen. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for watching to the end of my interview with Sean. If you want to learn more about auction websites and other great entrepreneurs, we interviewed Glenn Meekham, the founder of Free Markets, where Sean got his start in the world of auctions and startups. Fantastic interview. One of our all-time most popular. Go check it out.